Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is just a reminder that everything on the podcast is intended to be informational, educational, and entertaining. This is no way a substitute for therapy or the therapeutic process. If you find yourself in need of more direct support, please reach out for professional help. Or if you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or call 911. Hi everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Very excited to have a special guest with me today. She is an FASD educator and foster parent. I have with me Aubrey Page. Hi Aubrey, how are you? Hi, I'm doing so good. I'm so excited to talk today. I am so glad that you're here. So I'm going to start with you like I do all my guests and ask, what is your labor of love? My labor of love is educating people about the most common form of developmental disabilities fascinating. And I would love, I know a little bit about you, so um, I know where we're going, but (laughs) (laughs) before we get going there, um, tell us a little bit about how that became a labor of love for you. Yeah. So I've been a licensed foster parent for um, four years now, but we did respite before. So we've been doing it for about four and a half years. And um, it's, it's like such a a transformation from being a person that's like, yeah, I want to do foster care. This is going to be awesome. To like really understanding what trauma is and getting that education piece and then um, having a child stand in front of you and using that information. This is all, this is all a whole thing. And, and I have found anecdotally that a lot of foster parents have their own history of trauma that they're bringing to the table at maybe a higher percentage than average. And so it's like, it's a whole piece, right? So I start parenting kids in foster care. So many feelings. Everybody's having feelings. But I notice that there's something else going on. Like there's trauma. I can recognize trauma in my myself. Um, but there was something else happening and I could not identify it. Um, and so I had a child that was diagnosed with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder um, while they were with me. And I was like, oh, my gosh, is this it? Like, is this has this been what's, what it is for most of the kids that I've had these questions about? And my agency, my foster agency asked me to mentor other families. And as, I, and as I'm mentoring them, the, the goal for mentoring them was that they would not disrupt. And in, in foster care, disruption is when a family asks for a different placement for that kid, for, it to, for that child to move somewhere else. Um, the goal is to not disrupt. And these families were constantly in crisis and it was something beyond trauma. And I realized that the vast majority of the kids that I was mentoring the families for also had symptoms of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So I'm like, so like, how common is this, right? Like if, if I'm running into these kids all the time, how common is this? Well, in 2018, which is after when I started, I started learning all this information, um, there was a study done that found, it studied thousands of kids across the U.S. And the conservative estimate that they walked away with was two to 5% of first graders met criteria for FASD. But the less conservative estimate was three to 10%. So the number that we kind of go with in our community is 5%. So 5% of the, the general population is affected by fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, which makes it two and a half times as common as autism. And in fact, if you added autism, Down syndrome, Tourette's, cerebral palsy altogether, you still would not equal the number of children that are affected by fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So when you look at the numbers like that, you're like, 
why are we not talking about this like all the time in every school, in every foster agency, in every social worker course? Like, how is this not a giant point of discussion? Um, so as I was realizing the prevalence versus how much information we were getting, I wanted to fill the gap by providing the education piece. Um, and so the education piece obviously lends itself towards advocacy, and then it just kind of spirals from there. And now um, my job is educating people about fetal alcohol spectrum disorders and supporting families to help them feel successful. Wow. Fascinating and such important work that you do. I think awareness is a huge, huge part of uh, making change. I always say that uh, awareness breeds choice. And once we realize what's happening, we open ourselves up to more possibilities of choice. So I want to take a moment and, and, and kind of give, ask you to give us a little bit more information about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and what that looks like, how it manifests, what are the causes, so that some of the listeners who've never even heard of this because the awareness is so low, they may have heard of like ADHD or autism, mm-hmm, may not have mm-hmm. a lot of information, but they've definitely heard of them. Mm-hmm. There are chances that some of or the majority of my listeners have never heard of FASD. Yeah. I mean, it's so fascinating. I love what you said about choice too, because I'm really big on that also. So the causal factor for um, FASD has a shame piece to it. So um, a risk factor for FASD is prenatal alcohol um, exposure. And so um, in like with autism, we don't really know what causes it. And so there's no shame factor for that. But when we talk about FASD, um, our idea in our head is there was an active decision made on the part of a person. And so they are to blame, right? Um, When in fact, prenatal alcohol exposure is a risk factor and many other things come into play as well. Um, We have like nutrition, stress, obviously (laughs) stress is something that your audience would know a lot about. Um, And uh, epigenetic factors, um, the mom's genetics, the baby's, the fetus's genetics. So um, there was a study done on twins and they would have different effects. Same, same amount of alcohol exposure, but different effects. So there's just so many risk factors associated with it. Um, But because the information is not out there, the choice is not there. So I don't believe any woman drinks with the intention of harming her child. I think there are three reasons. One, she doesn't know she's pregnant. 50% of pregnancies are unplanned. Most women don't find out until four to six weeks. The central nervous system starts developing at three weeks. Second reason, her doctor tells her it's okay. It's very common. Although the American Academy of Pediatrics, the CDC, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists all say alcohol at any point in pregnancy or while trying to conceive is not safe, there are still doctors that are advising that it's okay. That sucks that that (laughs) the woman doesn't get the proper information to make the choice that I hate that for them. Um, And then the third reason is that they may be struggling with alcohol use um, disorder. And so that's not an active choice, right? That's something that we need to help that individual with tools. So we can't just say stop drinking. How do we help them get there? Um, One of the big pieces that is missing as far as awareness is the fact that alcohol is the most dangerous substance that a woman can use during pregnancy. So kind of as before I got into all of this, I assumed that drugs were the worst. (laughs) Like It's kind of the messaging that we're given. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is a 1996 report to Congress that says of all the substances of abuse, including cocaine, heroin, heroin, and marijuana, alcohol produces by far the most serious neurobehavioral effects of the fetus. 
1996. We have not done a good job getting that word out. And a lot of it is because of the stigma associated with it. In our heads, we in general know that you shouldn't drink during pregnancy, but a recent study found that 50% of pregnancies were alcohol exposed. So although we like know that, the whole planning factor of it, the, the vast majority of those were within the first couple months of pregnancy before the woman knew that she was pregnant. Because we aren't giving enough information about the effects, women aren't able to make a very informed choice. So what are the effects of alcohol? If we do drink alcohol, what might it look like? So very often people are going to, the most common misdiagnosis for kids is ADHD. Um, another major common misdiagnosis is autism. And so often I would describe it as like those two conditions being smushed together, right? We have the executive functioning, the impulsivity, the hyperactivity of ADHD. And then we have the social cognition challenges, maybe the language challenges, some of the memory challenges, um, motor skills, cognition, those kinds of things associated with autism. And so what ends up happening is that because these kids don't fit into the two major categories or many other categories they are diagnosed with ODD, dysregulated mood disorder, many other things, because they don't fit into a category that people know about commonly, they often are not recognized for their disability. And when you have a disability that's not recognized and people expect that you're capable of X, Y, and Z, then you're going to get frustrated and you're probably going to get mad like a lot. And then people are going to see you as a behavior challenge versus as having brain-based needs that are not being met. And so oftentimes, by the time I'm involved with a family, we're looking at major behavior struggles. But behaviors are symptoms without the proper accommodation. So we need to figure out how we can adapt and help this child be supported so that we can we can see them where they're at, see their symptoms as symptoms and not as choices. We can see it as a can't, they can't do something versus they won't do something. Um, so I got to pause you and say, I need you to say that statement again about behaviors. Yeah. So um, behaviors are symptoms without the proper accommodations. I almost jumped in and said, girl, you better come <laughs> out. No, that is so good. Okay. <laughs> Like in the podcast, um, you know, like that, that's it in so many levels. Behaviors are symptoms without proper accommodation. Behaviors are the language of those who cannot use their voice to express their needs. Behaviors are a way to get needs met. Yes. For one's self. And mm. that right there, I think is so much. I'm going to have you go on, but I want to go back to a couple of things you said. Yeah. Um, and I got so excited about the behavior thing. Now I got to remember <laughs> um, <laughs> what, what it was um, that I was thinking. So one thing is interestingly, and this is so much good information. Thank you. Because I, there is a lot of this. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, I think being trauma responsive puts me on the side where I can, uh, engage with people in a way that can be sensitive to these things, but the full out awareness of some of the things you've just shared is, uh, is mind blowing and, and very helpful. So thank you. One is that alcohol, um, is a more dangerous substance during pregnancy than drugs. Mm. And while I did not know that the first thing that came to my mind when you said it, but it is the most accessible. Oh, like, yes. I'm especially accepted. 
accessible and socially accepted. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so even, I mean, if you see, you're not going to go to a restaurant and see a person, a woman, whether you know she's pregnant or not doing meth, it's just Mm -hmm. not going to (laughs) happen. Um, you know, well, (laughs) I've never been to that restaurant. There's that, there's that one time, you know, in Albuquerque, but um, you, but you see someone drinking alcohol and you don't think anything of it. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought about that. Like there is an awareness piece if people knew, but there is an accessibility, um, thing to it. And I'm trying to remember the second thing that was really good. I was chopping at the bit, um, of, oh yes. This idea that when we don't have a name for something or a label for something, we as humans really get jacked up. Mm, mm. So when we can't categorize something, what I've noticed across the board is we start, you know, trying to saw down the edges of the square so we can fit it in the circle. Yeah. And that think about that actual action, sawing down the sides of a square. That's painful. It's mm. uncomfortable. Um, it's not helpful to the integrity of the shape. And that's what we do to people. When we don't have an accurate label or an understanding of what they're experiencing, our brain will naturally try to get us to put it in a category because that's how we survive as a species so long, categorization and quick decisions. Mm -hmm. And so I want to acknowledge it as like a biological response to life and stress and threat, but also being the power of the pause to slow down long enough to go, okay, it's not fitting in either category. That doesn't make something wrong with the child or the person. Mm -hmm. It just means we have limited understanding. Mm. And the number of kids who are in schools and day treatment programs and residential programs and um, partial hospitalization and hospital settings who are getting their, their, their sides shaved Mm. to try to get them to fit into some kind of diagnosis that doesn't often take into account what they need, but how we can medicate them. Mm. Y'all, we got to stop it. <laughs> okay, yes. I'm going to pass the offering plate later. <laughs> but, you know, really, we got to stop because we are doing so much damage to so many people. And then there was the shame factor. That's what it was. Yeah, I do a really good job of talking myself until I find out <laughs> that I was, what I was looking for. Shame. I, oh, I just feel like maybe I should do a whole episode on shame. Shame is not just kind of, oh, I feel bad. It has very physiological and biological responses in our bodies. And when we are, when things are uh, dripped in shame, that means people hide them. And when we hide them, it, it, it creates a barrier to the awareness we're talking about so that children can't get help so that we don't have proper awareness or diagnoses or whatever we're looking for to provide the support because so much stigma around mm. things makes people just not want to talk about it or deny it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's huge. So, okay. Well, we, and we may we, now resume. <laughs> where we were. Really um, so even more so though, when you're tying in the shame piece and the, the, um, the social acceptability of alcohol. So I have several friends who have biological children who have FASD. Um, the vast majority of the community that I work with are foster and adoptive parents. And I want to change that. I want to work with more biological parents, but we have this impediment, right? Like the, the, the challenge of talking about it. So whenever I train medical workers, I talk about um, the American Academy of Pediatrics has um, a sheet on their um, FASD toolkit that talks about how 
you can talk to patients and not be shame inducing. Um, but of course, it's still hard. And, um, you know, many of these women have shared their stories publicly and talk about the grief process that they went through acknowledging this. But even now, even in their their time of ownership and like, yes, I know that this is what happened um, and I did drink. And yes, they still will get um, belittled and shamed by medical providers, mm. um, by educators, um, and definitely by people in society. And so we can't, we can't do that because not only because it's not fair to the woman who did not know that she was pregnant, because again, no woman drinks with the intention of harming your child. Um, uh, but also it's not fair to the child. You're essentially saying your mom made a horrible decision and you were the result. That's not fair. We need to acknowledge the complexity that brought us here today and also the beauty of what we have in front of us. And when, when we wrap it in shame, we're wrapping the people who are on the spectrum in shame also, and they don't deserve that. They're such cool people, like so cool. So um, that is a big piece of it. Also, when that study happened um, from UNC, they found that FASD was equally present amongst all socioeconomic groups but we don't think of it that way. Oh no, we don't think of it that way. We think of it as a disability of children of addicts. And we don't think of addicts being in all socioeconomic groups. Nope. But they are. And realistically, we need to have some hard conversations about mommy wine culture and how we are encouraging women to cope with the stress of parenting by drinking um, and what that means for them long-term Yes, maybe for some people, it is a drink that, you know, we're taking the edge off, whatever, in that one instance. But when we create a trend there, that's a whole other piece. And so part of the prevention aspect is normalizing actual self-care, which I know you're big into also, versus Band-Aids. And until we acknowledge that there are women in middle-class America that are using this as a Band-Aid, that is having long-term effects on their children, then I don't think we'll get widespread recognition because as of now, it looks like this is a disability that affects someone else. When realistically it does affect our our neighbors, our community, um, but those kids are diagnosed with ADHD and autism. And so they don't don't have the causal factor. So we can't have that conversation. That's so good. And so important for people to just take a pause and, and just listen to this. And we have, we humans, um, I feel have this very pesky habit of othering. Mm. It's them. It's over there. Couldn't happen here. You know, I've had the, the fortunate pleasure of having some really awesome conversations on this podcast with a number of guests. And there are so many topics that we've covered that this falls under that category, mm-hmm. whether it was you know, uh, Jamie Cyrus and I talking about childhood sexual abuse, mm. right? This idea that that happens to other people, that does not happen in our family, that does not happen in our community, that doesn't happen in our church. Uh, it does. It does. It does. Mm. And so as long as it's something that's over there and something that is not here, then we put our blinders on and we're not uh, fully looking for things that can prevent these things from happening and then wrap the victims of it in love and support. Whether it was done right and I talking about suicide, Mm. that's something that happens over there. That doesn't Mm -hmm. happen in our family. That doesn't happen in our community. That doesn't happen to people like us. It does. 
It absolutely does. And as long as we're not talking about these things, then it feeds this, well, that's how I know it doesn't happen in my community because I never hear about it. Mm -hmm. But Mm. when these things are shame-based, you don't hear about it because we don't create safe places in society for people to be vulnerable and talk about them. And so now we add FASD, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, to that list of things that we are not talking about. Um, And it's, it's so important that we do because there are so many people who could Um, have increased qualities of experiences and relationships Mm. if those around them would mitigate their expectations to where they are. So let's talk about that for a second, kind of just this idea of what does support look like for a person who has FASD? So my biggest barrier when I start helping a family is that usually the parents come to me with the hope and desire of changing their kids. But what actually has to happen is the parents have to change, Um, which can sound super overwhelming. And maybe I don't want to do that. But the good news is, is that we are in charge of ourselves. And so when we start assessing how we see our children and what kinds of symptoms that we're looking at, um, that can garner empathy with us. And that improves your relationship, right? So if you look at your child as a liar and a thief and so disrespectful in so many terrible ter- terms that I've heard used for these kids, then that that does not, that's not a connecting, it's not, it doesn't make you feel good. It doesn't make the kid feel good. They can tell that's what you think. Um, even if you don't say it or you think you don't say it in front of them. Mm-hmm. So when we change um, how we see that, and instead of seeing a liar, we see a kid with short-term memory challenges who sometimes confabulates or fills in details and then tells us to tells it to us in a very honest way. They truly believe this information, but to us, it's a lie. I put my backpack up. I am looking at your backpack right now. It's on the floor, but I put it up and they're remembering they put it up yesterday or they, they have filled in that blank that they put it up. And so they feel like they're being incredibly honest. And you're like, how could you possibly be lying about? They're not lying. They're confabulating. If you have a kid that is constantly taking things, stealing, if you will, maybe they don't understand ownership. Ownership's a very nuanced concept and our kids are usually very concrete thinkers. And so unless the name, you know, mom's gift card is written on it, then maybe let's not keep it on the dining room table. Right. So these kind of accommodations where we know some of the symptoms that our kids struggles with and we're preventative in how we handle them as parents, both from an empathy standpoint, you know, we're stopping, we're thinking, yes, there's a causal factor for this. Yes, this is a symptom. My child is not doing this willfully. They're not a bad person. Um, But also modifying our expectations in that way. And then we're also modifying the environment by not keeping gift cards out. Or if we have a kid who will impulsively eat themselves sick, which is a very common thing in our community locking up food, um, these kinds of things that help us. Um, yeah, I, I always say that if there's something that we're fighting about, like every day, I am doing something wrong as a parent, I have to reassess how I'm presenting that, you know, how am I handling it from a parenting standpoint after something happens? How am I handling it? Um, am I not locking something up? Have I not created a boundary? A lot of times I hear from kids I've parented, well, you didn't tell me I couldn't. And you're like, Dad, gummit, I didn't. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't, I did not say that. You're right. I did not say take a shovel to my backyard or don't take a shovel to my backyard. I assume that you know that, but then that's on me because I didn't say it. Um, so how do we as parents make sure that we have set up our kids for success 
And then when they are not having a very successful day, how do we help cope with an escalation, which is very similar to, as, to, as trauma techniques for helping a kid through an escalation? Um, how do we help through in a connecting way um, versus a shame-inducing way? So much good stuff. Okay. So <laughs> as you were talking, I had this thought. So go with me. And okay. if we get to the end and we're like, nope, that's not it, we'll say, <laughs> okay, no. But I think it's at least, at least worth the journey. So, so much of what you were talking about, every example you gave is, is present in my children. Uh-huh. They're four. Yeah. And in some with my, my almost, oh my goodness, he'll be 11 uh, soon. So anyway, have that moment. So when you talked about uh, the concrete nature of thought for mm-hmm. a child mm-hmm. um, and, you know, for my daughters, anything that took place before this moment is yesterday. So when you're talking to one of them and they bring up a happy moment that happened yesterday, that could have been yesterday. It could have been 10 minutes ago. It could have been when they were two. Mm -hmm. Um, When someone has wronged them and they bring it up, it could have been yesterday. It could have been 10 minutes ago. It could have been when they were two. Are they from Texas? Because in Texas, you say it happened the other day, but it was really like 15 years ago. I still do that. And I'm not (laughs) even in Texas. The other day means somewhere usually between, you know, like middle school and now. So there's that. And as you begin to talk about, you didn't say I didn't. This comes up a lot with my my preteen child, Mm -hmm. right? When when he doesn't get a no Mm -hmm. for something. Um, or I'm thinking or a pause. It's a, well, you didn't say no. Mm-hmm. So part of me is, is saying, I think what could help us is if we reframed, not that children who have FASD are somehow, there's something, <laughs> let's look at it instead of a deficit. I get that, right? Mm-hmm. But really what we're talking about is there are mechanisms in their brains that prevent them from being able to kind of move towards the abstract thought and all of these other higher level processing that children eventually move to developmentally. And I think that if we just realize that as people, they are awesome human beings whose hardware is not allowing the software to update, Mm -hmm. then we can really treat them differently because when my four-year-olds are saying yesterday mm-hmm. and they mean elapsed time, people have so much more leniency with yes. that four-year-old than they do that 14-year-old. Mm, yes. Because the some of the barriers that we come in contact with to helping and supporting and loving the children we're talking about is our expectation based on their body size and yeah. their chronological age. Mm. So we find ourselves saying and thinking things like you ought to know better. Yeah. How old are you? You ought to be ashamed mm. of yourself. When I hear that my whole body cringes and it comes in the tone of every black mother in the church that I've ever known. <laughs> it was like a you know, it's like a saying that just happens. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. And oh, so anyway, whole different subject. Um, but it's just like, no, why are we heaping shame on people? So let's just think about that. Their hardware, how the brain is functioning and developing based on something that they had no control over. 
is inhibiting their ability to develop the way we have expectations for people to develop and how they engage with the world around certain things that, that, that require higher level functioning, executive functioning, abstract thought, and all of these different things that we take for granted. And I think if we could just reframe it, then that would help. And then there's also looking at our expectations because you know where our expectations are based Hmm. in our own trauma. Mm -hmm. And If we're not willing to look at our own developmental and relational trauma, if we're not willing to look at the things that have happened in our lives that were so not nurturing, Mm. that were so um, hurtful and harmful that we had to wrap a story around and say, well, this is just how life goes, or they're just parenting, then we're going to take those same expectations and we're going to put them on another child. Um, regardless of their ability to meet those expectations. So it all comes down to what, what it always, always always comes down to, which is we got to do our own work. As yes. Yes. I, that, that comes up a lot in trainings. People say, you know, X, Y, or Z, and there is usually a developmental and chronological gap for our kids. So it's not always the case, but our generalized idea is that a kid's chronological age, you should cut that in half for their developmental age to, to manage your expectations. Um, because like you're talking about, younger kids are very concrete thought. That's something that develops. Um, and, and for some individuals on the spectrum that we just never get there and that's fine. I think there's a lot of beauty in seeing the world from that perspective. I've been asked like the most amazing questions about life because of the concreteness. And I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, you're right. Why do we do it that way? I don't know. <laughs> um, so it's, it, it's really cool in many ways, but we just expect differently. Um, but our, when I'm talking to parents, um, they'll say, well, they, you know, they do this. And I'm like, to be honest, you just got to get over that. And I I say, you know, this has a lot more to do about with you than it does the child. Mm -hmm. And they're like, you know, you're right. I call them parent triggers. I know that's probably not an original term, but like, this is like, it's the thing that makes your eye twitch. Like what, what is it that you're like, oh my gosh, if they do that again, and we all have something. And for every kid, um, FASD is one of those disabilities that when you describe it verbally to someone, so, well, every kid does that, which is not helpful rhetoric, by the way. Um, usually this is like to the nth degree. Um, but when we as parents can have more empathy for the child, where they're at, recognize what we are bringing to the table as far as this is, was did we grow up as many of us did in a very respect oriented household. And so when our kid laughs in the middle of us talking to them about something, we get very upset, but maybe they're laughing because they really don't have the social skills. Um, Usually it's harder for them to pick up on the nuance of social skills. So I love speech therapy for that. Um, So they don't have the social skills to know that that's inappropriate. So instead of being mad at them saying, so you may not know, but it's inappropriate to laugh while mom's talking about this. Right. Like we can say that and teach them versus being like, do it again. Like one more time, you know, like we, we got to bring it back and be in a teaching place. Um, but that's so hard because then we are responsible for what happens. And it's I think it's really hard as parents for us to put kind of the weight on our shoulders. Um, I don't know if it was part of a generational thing, but I just feel like so much of what we're trying to do is we're like we're trying to mold this kid into this like who we are now which is a problem in and of itself because we're not children we're adults um but that gap strains the relationship so much and it's so much more important to have a good relationship than it is to have homework done for example uh, yes (laughs) 
yes, on so many levels. And I want to even tease out because I think some things that you just said even took what I said a little further. And what I mean by is rooted in our own trauma is I talk about templates often and I define a template as the beliefs, the worldviews and the behaviors that we develop growing up in our family systems and our social structures. Um, Beliefs being uh, ideas that we hold as true or a thing. And when a bunch of ideas come together, they form a worldview. And our behaviors are how we engage with the world based on the way we view it, our worldview. And so you talk about growing up in respect culture. And here's the interesting thing, how I've seen this play out in my home. So I definitely grew up where what, W-H-A-T, was Mm. not an acceptable Mm. form of response Mm -mm. to pretty much anything. Mm -mm. Like uh, it wasn't, it wasn't acceptable for clarification. It wasn't respect or uh, it wasn't acceptable for like a response. And what I find is with my children, um, it it just comes out when they call Mm -hmm. my name, Mm -hmm. it's what, and Mm -hmm. it's not always in a what, but it's just like, what, what do you need? You know what? And interestingly, um, when I say something to my children, do you know how they respond to me? How? What? Yep. And, and it's fine. Like this, this is fine. What's always interesting is when my mother is on a video call with one of my mm, daughters Yeah, and uh, she says, she calls one of their names and they say, what? And mm-hmm. it, it never fails. Did you just say what? And yeah. it's, it's, she's not like mean or like um, disciplining them, but it like shocks her sister yeah. yes. of like, whoa, that's not okay. But you know what? It's a response. They learned it from me and I'm okay. So I'm bringing that up because when I started to hear my kids say it to me, it would do a thing Mm -hmm. in my stomach and it, and I was automatically to this form of wanting to be like, who do you think you're like this whole (laughs) response until I realized like they learned what, just like they learned, bless you. Mm -hmm. I didn't Mm -hmm. sit them down and teach them either one, but they respond. Um, They say, please, they say, thank you. They do all of that stuff. Cause so do I, but I also say what? Mm -hmm. And so it's just interesting that when we talk about this, when that child is doing something and it sends you there, wherever Mm -hmm. there is, that's a great moment to take the power of the pause. That's a great moment to reflect. Why why is this triggering me? Why is this activating me? What is this linked to? What's my belief around it? What's my worldview around it? And, and, And as we begin to, even if it's in hindsight, then we can begin to understand why that's so triggering. It's why one thing can be nerve wracking to you and some other things are not, but to a different parent, it's so different. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had a friend growing up who would come over to our house and she was just notorious for like opening stuff, like our cabinets and (laughs) just looking. I mean, she was just like, she would, I don't know. She would explore. Oh my goodness. I could see my mother's head about to explode. Like every time, like you just don't do that. But I think there were other things that probably didn't happen at other people's houses that, that happened in ours that might have had the same effect. The problem is when we universalize right, wrong, good, bad, um, as a way of existing in the world, when really it's just part of our template. Mm -hmm. And if our children who are, um, living with FASD have some kind of response or behavior that triggers that template, 
that has more to do with our template than it does that child, which is what you were saying. So I definitely think that the power of the pause for parents is going to be key. And then language is important. You mentioned like if we could just say things differently. Let me tell you, if you call your child a liar in your head, mm. you go treat that child they like know. a liar and <laughs> how you respond to that. If you call me a liar in your head, you going to treat me that way yeah. too. And, yeah. and, and here's the challenge though. That child can only take how you're treating them and fill in the gaps based on their own personal narrative of what you're giving them. And so you are not saying to them, I'm really struggling with what's happening right now because of my template. No, you're just calling them a liar. Mm -hmm. And so they begin to internalize those messages implicitly and explicitly. And so we really have to be careful. And I know we're talking a lot to parents um, because we spend a lot of time with our children, especially during COVID. But (laughs) this is all for educators. If you're in the criminal justice system, juvenile detention centers, you know, uh, law enforcement, churches. I never leave churches out Mm. because that's the safe place where people send their kids, right? And then they get traumatized up the wazoo because people are not informed and aware. And so this message is for everyone. You know, we have to be aware of that. So I just wanted to throw those things out there too. Yeah, I um, I was thinking about that when you mentioned residential treatment facilities, because this is, this is uh, of course, we're talking about what it looks like for us as parents to not be able to see our kids where they're at, um, what it looks like for us to get triggered. But if you imagine being a child who cannot meet people's expectations for years and years and years and years, like you are also being traumatized from this gap of what you're capable of providing and what people expect of you. Um, and so then when you go to operate in a new environment, your assumption is going to be that these people are out to get you. You're going to get it wrong. You're going to give up easily. You're going to fight back. You're going to be in a loper, all of these kind of things that we associate with bad behaviors. And we don't stop and think, I wonder why that kid is getting so upset in this environment. Is it something to do with sensory input? Is it something to do with our expectations? And I find that like academic expectations is something we don't really question a lot. But when you're in these these home environments so often that are not supportive and recognizing of the the brain-based disability that you have, then we have bigger and bigger and bigger behaviors because our symptoms are not accommodated. When I go to look at kids who are languishing in foster care, waiting for adoption, the many, many, many of them are in group homes and residential. Um, I specifically take in preteens and teens. I don't, little kids, they are really needy. So that's not, those are not my people. Um, but when I'm looking at profiles for preteens and teens, this kid has FASD, this kid has FASD, this kid has FASD, this kid. Now, are they diagnosed? No, because our population is diagnosed at a rate of 1%. But I can read it in their profile. And I know that's exactly the piece that everyone on their team is missing. And I don't have a lot of like, I have a couple places that will work with me and like trying to better understand what that means for a kid. But a lot of times I get, ah, what you know, they have these behaviors. They, I have, you know, misdiagnosis for FASD. ODD is a very common one, especially in foster care, um, because they're like, oh, well, they won't do what you, I asked them to. Can they understand what you asked them? Do they need more time to process? Do they need it phrased in a different way? Do they need reminders? I get told all the time my kid won't do something. I'm like, I think there's a little bit more to that story. So in foster care, it's really easy to write off a kid, right? There's just another case. And so these kids then 
don't have the family that's constantly fighting for them. Well, many times they do from a biological perspective, but when we have kids that are changing placements regularly, um, we don't have somebody that is regularly fighting for that case. Like, what is the truth here, right? There are caseworkers that follow kids and are like, there is something more. And I've been contacted by them and I super appreciate their work. But a lot of times I get told a case and I'm like, you are looking at this from purely a behavioral lens and sometimes even purely a trauma lens, because as important as a trauma lens is for everyone. Oh, my gosh. When you're talking about things happen in other communities, I'm like, that's what we believe about trauma. I'm not traumatized. I'm middle class white lady. I'm I have no trauma. Right. That's not Uh true. Um, So trauma. Yes. In our community. Um, But also when we only look at kids from a trauma based lens, then we could miss the brain differences that are inherent. And there is no amount of healing that is going to change that to the degree that we're picturing. And so as biological parents, as foster parents, as adoptive parents, when we're working with these kids, we may be like looking for a conclusion. Like at what point do we get there? And as somebody that experienced childhood trauma, (laughs) that's not how trauma works either. But um, but when you're talking about a developmental disability, we have to relook at um, what the future looks like. Not that the future is bleak and grim, but that it may require more supports. Uh, another clarify, uh, thing I want to clarify is that um, 70% of individuals with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder have IQs over 70. So it's kind of a misnomer that um, cognition is always impacted. Um, but you can have really significant executive functioning challenges where it's really hard to like organize things in your life, keep track of whatever, and have a high, higher than average IQ. There's one lady that got interviewed on another podcast. She got straight A's in high school. Did you get straight A's in high school? I did not get straight A's in high school. I'm like, oh, okay. But she has FASD. And so when we see a kid, we test their IQ and we're like, they're fine. That's not the entirety of how the brain works. So how do we accommodate them? knowing that their brain is working differently, recognizing, yeah, maybe trauma is a factor, but this brain-based symptom is going to persist no matter what. And how do we help them be successful knowing that? So on point, exactly what I meant by the hardware, their yeah. brain, how it's functioning. Yep. And um, and we, we, we blame the software, which is their output, you know, mm-hmm. their behavior, when sometimes, again, it's a hardware issue. And so I think that is so important. And I really just hope that the listeners can really take this in. And if nothing else, make them want to be more aware. How can we be more curious? Curious and compassion or curiosity and compassion are two words that I think are of utmost importance of navigating the world. Because when we don't lean in with curiosity, we lean in with judgment. Mm. And once we lean in with judgment, we respond behaviorally to the judgment that we've made up. But when we lean in with curiosity, it leaves us open for more information. I wonder, I wonder how that thing that that person is doing is like helping them solve a problem or meet a need or feel safe right now. If we, I wondered each Mm -hmm. other more, so many of the issues we have would decrease because that curiosity would leave us open for information. And then with that information, we could provide the support that's needed in that moment for that person. But again, when we come in with judgment, they're just a jerk. 
They're mm-hmm. just, you know, this kind of kid. And let's be real that we're, we're talking about the disability right now. But when you layer on all of the other biases, explicit yes. and implicit that come along with it, how, how, a, how a young kid with FASD is treated is different than how an older kid with FASD is treated, how a white kid is mm. treated mm-hmm. with FASD is different than how a black kid or a, a Latin X child is treated with FASD because we're coming in with all of these judgments, the bigger the body, you know, what they're wearing, all of these uh, visual cues are triggering judgments within us. And we kind of put that all together. It makes an expectation. And then we engage with the judgment story and expectation that we've created instead of with the person who's right in front of us. How much would our relationships change if we were able to pause long enough to actually engage with what's in front of us? And if we realize that literally all behavior has meaning, And all behavior is set to meet a need. If we stopped focusing so much on making the behavior stop and focused on meeting the need, man, we would have a very different world if we would approach things like that. Yeah. I was hoping we would get to the intersectionality of disabilities and everything else, because I think that that's a really important point for professionals to take home. Um, If we are looking at a child and we are assuming their developmental age based on our own perception of their age, which is hard when our society sees black children as looking older than they are. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have a, a, an 11 year old black child um, who is doing something and police start giving directions if they have slow processing pace if they don't understand what those directions mean in the context of how they're standing now. Um, and I've, I've been trained, so I'm um, in the military and I was on active duty and I've been trained in the, and this is one, one of the ways we were trained to do this. Put your hands above your head, get down on your knees, do it, do it now. Can't follow that directions. Mm-hmm. We, we can do with that information. You can't follow that. So if we have people who are already struggling to understand information, now we're in a situation where it's life or death. For us to be able to process this. So we got to be able to slow down and think that, in fact, people are not necessarily not following directions because they don't want to, but maybe because they can't. And we hold this true for professionals. We're hoping that we want less restraints with kids, more de-escalation. And I'm not just talking about with law enforcement, also in residential placements, group facilities, hospitalizations, all of that kind of stuff. We want a more um, trauma-informed, connecting approach to begin with, but the same holds true for parents. We need to like take a step back and think, are they not doing it? Like, so another thing that um, Diane Malvin says, which I like, got to hold at the core of all of this: kids would do well if they could. So if we go in assuming that this child does not want to do well, that they're trying to make me mad, which I hear from children a lot, but. I've heard that from adults also, then we are going to assume that what they're doing is willful behavior. But if we assume that they want to do well, then when things don't go well, we can be more curious and think, I wonder, I wonder what's going on inside their brain. Is it something, something happened? Somebody said something at school. Is it how I phrase something? They got confused and got frustrated with themselves. Where are we at right now versus 
Say that to me one more time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not that and I have it, never done that, but. <laughs> I'm with you, fully human over here too. It takes such a concerted effort to research what's happening. And I think we flip our lids if you use Dan Siegel mm-hmm. language in the hand brain. So the thing that's happening is we as human beings, you know, I don't speak in generalizations often, like always, never or everyone, but every person, period, has had an experience where they have lost connection to their executive cognitive functioning Mm -hmm. because of increased stress, fear, or threat, Mm -hmm. because it's how the brain works. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, people will notice when that part of their brain goes offline and the survival part of their brain kicks in, even if momentarily, it is hard to come up with words to say that makes sense. It's hard to remember what you've been asked to do. You get flustered. We, we might have this when, you know, something scares you. And then someone said, what did you say? You're like, what, huh? What? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've ever been like an accident, like let's say an automobile accident or something. And you're like in that moment and someone comes up like, are you okay? What do you need? And you're like, huh? What? Like, huh? Yeah. What? Like it, the world is a haze yeah. and that might be a temporary moment because of situations that you're in, in that moment, that you lose the ability to have that executive functioning. Imagine walking around in your life where that is your space of being all day. And the effort, energy, and resources that it takes to make sense of one thing when 12 things are coming at you at Mm. one time. Yeah, Like we can have, we humans can have so much empathy for those who have FASD, And a lot of other brain-based developmental disabilities, if we took a moment to just realize we experience them, but on temporary, momentary basis. And on top of it just being temporary, we're often wrapped in support, love, acceptance, and all of these other things that that cause, um, that insulate us Mm -hmm. and give us a reserve and so we come out of it saying, oh, yeah, that happened to me once and I just got over it or I just did this or this was fine. But you're not looking at all of the resilience factors that you have in your life that allowed you to move through that temporary moment and come out relatively quickly. But if we realize that some people are functioning like this in this haze, in this very complex nature of trying to make sense of the information that is being put in them while they simultaneously put out information that is socially acceptable. Doesn't that example, don't my words just make you feel tired? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Don't you just feel tired? Like why you got to use all them words? Because that's what's happening. Yeah. So can we sit in a place of curiosity, compassion, and empathy? And if we can, man, we would treat people very differently, but I get it. So many of us have never been treated with curiosity, compassion, and empathy. So we've never had the example of what that looks like for someone to unconditionally accept us as we are and wrap love and support around us to help us feel needed. That's such a foreign concept for most of us that we couldn't even muster it sometimes if we try because we're trying to pull from our past experiences. And this is why I talk about breaking generational cycles. You didn't get it. I get it. Let's start now. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, when you were, um, when you were talking about that, I was thinking about sometimes when I give examples, um, to parents about confabulation. Um, so like when we have memory gaps and our brain fills in, every person has confabulated at some point in their life. It's just, it's a typical, (laughs) it's a typical thing we do. 
And when we see our kids do it, we just, we, it's something else, right? It's different when we look at it for ourselves. So I think it's really important when we're looking at, I mean, from a, from a trauma perspective, when you're talking about people experiencing trauma and recognizing our own experiences, but also these brain differences. I have definitely forgotten stuff. I have, you know, gotten frazzled and forgotten to pay a bill or whatever, um, lost my homework, a million other things. Um, this, these things happen to me. So sometimes I joke, like, what is neurotypical? It's like, so our brains all work differently in so many different ways. Um, but it is much easier for us to have that empathy for ourselves. And especially when I like what you said about the link, like we're outputting language that people can relate to and they have empathy with. A lot of times our kids have a hard time explaining things like pain so they can escalate over a pain that they can't communicate to you um, or the frustration. Whereas I can say, you know, I was really frustrated. There's a lot of things going on. I got upset. I'm sorry. I can say that. But what if you can't? And then people are just like, well, he's just a jerk, you know? <laughs> um, so, yes, I think that's so true. It changes our perspective substantially. Yeah. And everything does. And we confabulate all the time. Why do I say all the time? You don't think it, you're, you're not consciously lying all mm -mm. the time, mm -mm. but your brain, you don't remember nearly as much you I'm talking to whoever you, me, <laughs> you, everybody, you don't remember nearly as much as you think you do. Yeah. No, you don't. And that's why if 10 people had one experience, you take them out an hour later, have them recount detail by detail, you get 10 different accounts. Yeah. The brain doesn't like to have that gap and not know. So it just fills it in. Now, here's the here's the point. Where Where is it getting the information to fill it in? Our past experiences. And so it's our past experiences that then provide the data for that information to go in there. I, when I talk about uh, trauma before the pandemic, I would use 9-11 as an example to mm, bring about yeah. how we have this shared traumatic experience. And what I would do is I would ask, is there anyone who does not remember where they were on 9-11? And usually if there was someone who didn't remember, they were very young at the time. So we go that route. But the point is, most people can tell you exactly where they were, what they were doing, the, all of this information, right? Tra yeah. Traumatic memory doesn't get stored like regular memory. But then I will ask, where were you on April 12th, 1996? Right. 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 And and this is what people start doing. Like, I don't know. Okay. So April, so it was a spring. <laughs> so I lived in that house. I would have been in sixth grade. And, and they start yeah. like putting together these, like the dad, they put together the facts yep. so that they can come up with a story that's complete BS. Yep. Yep, <laughs> you yep, don't, yep. You, you don't, don't know. know. No. And the thing is our brain, our brain doesn't get to a space where it goes. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It just fills in information. And it's filling it in based on past experiences. What makes sense It's pulling in all of the, well, if it was at night, well, what time? If it was at nighttime, it was dark, blah, blah, blah. So we can have empathy for the person or the child who puts together those details, albeit completely inaccurate, but so is your account of that great day you had yeah. <laughs> so is your account of how it was to work in that place right yeah. you might remember the emotional draw pull or intensity of an experience but them details yeah ain't that accurate mm -mm. please and so if we can just hold that that's what's happening in humanity mm -hmm. then we lean in in dealing with someone who struggles with their brain being able to do that on a more regular basis with more compassion mm -hmm. and so that was that was so good 
I feel like we could talk about this for hours. What, we'll just start our own podcast just about I'm saying, like, <laughs> stay tuned. We just talk about it all day. I, I haven't been this preachy on a podcast in a really long time. So, <laughs> well, we're about to bless a lot of people with that. <laughs> oh, you know, but it's, I'm passionate about yeah, it because, yeah. you know, awareness breeds choice. And if we're not aware, then we keep engaging like we don't have a different way to engage with children and people who struggle or are living with FASD. And I want people to know it exists so that they can at least be more curious. Um, there are tons of resources, I'm sure. Aubrey, you are one of those resources. If people are saying like, wow, this is fascinating. How can people get in touch with you, uh, find you? And are there any additional resources you'd like to offer? Yeah, so I am um, AubreyPage.org online, and then I'm most active on Instagram at AubreyPageFASD, but I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest, all of those. Um, I also have a YouTube channel. If you look up Aubrey Page FASD Educator, I've, I've started posting videos, including the talk that you, you and I had, um, so that we can kind of generate a repository of resources, and I have playlists saved of other videos on there as well. On my website, I have a resources tab. Um, I have things like a, um, a resource. I'm trying to get a resource in every state, like identify one in every state. So I have a nationwide resource um, spreadsheet and um, graphics that you can share. Um, of course, I give trainings. Um, I do a lot of trainings for social workers, educators. Um, and so all that information is helpful. And I try to share more resources on that page as well. Thank you. We will uh, put, make sure that Aubrey's information is in the show notes, of course, so that you can get in touch with her and um, access her resources. Um, I like to round out the podcast with asking each of my guests to tell us a fun, interesting, or little known fact about themselves. So um, I mentioned that I am in the military. I'm a reservist now, but when I was on active duty, I um, crossed the Atlantic by ship five times, which is an odd number of times. Um, I did get flown home one time, but um, that's probably about four times too many. It takes quite a while. I was going to say that sounds like that takes a long time. On the way back, you actually add hours because of the time change. So it's like the longest return home ever. Um, but it is it is beautiful in the middle of the ocean. Oh, wow. That is very interesting. Thank you so much for sharing. Aubrey, listen, I really appreciate um, us being able to connect and you being a guest today to shed some very important light um, on a very under uh, acknowledged and under talked about developmental disability. So thank you so much for being my guest today. Oh my gosh. Thank you for helping me spread the word. It's so important. Absolutely. I also want to give thanks to Trey Angel, who provides the music for the Labors of Love podcast, my producer, Instant Classic Media, and to you, my guest. I do not take for granted that you spent time with me today. Thank you so much. If you want to reach out to me, if you have suggestions for content or guests, you can find me at www.thelaborsoflove.com. We're on all the major social media outlets. Don't forget our YouTube channel, where every Thursday we have a Therapy Thursday video. And don't forget to rate, subscribe, give us that five-star rating and share the podcast until we connect again you all be well